you would take your Bibles and join me this morning in turning to Psalm 119.33. Psalm 119 and verse number 33. We'll consider just two verses together in our time together today. Last week, we talked about the importance of Bible intake. My challenge to you in establishing uh, resolutions and disciplines for life over the course of the next year was to make the reading and the study of the Word a consistent part of your daily routine, to give yourselves to the nourishment of your soul through the intake of the Bible. You are setting all sorts of routines and regimens and disciplines and resolving to a variety of different things in the new year. I can think of nothing that would be more critical to your growth in Christ than the reading and the study of his word. I can remember as a new believer, beginning the way most new believers begin, attending Sunday morning services and then eventually beginning to attend Sunday evening services in our rural church with my granny. And then one day uh, saying to her in the only terms I really had to express my sensation about the matter, Granny, I think I need to begin attending the Wednesday night prayer meeting because Sunday sort of wears off around midweek, right? There is something unique, something special about the gathering of the body, something that cannot be replicated elsewhere. The reading and the preaching of God's word over us is soul nourishing and refreshing and encouraging. It revives us and readies us for the week of ministry that by God's good grace lies yet ahead. This is the work of the gathering of the local body. And the preaching of the word, the reading of the word is a critical part of, of, of that whole experience of preparing the believer for ministry yet ahead. But we don't eat once a week, right? I think I can say that confidently looking out across this congregation. We don't eat once a week. Rather, we maintain our nourishment on a consistent, regular basis. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Your practice is not to enjoy a Sunday meal and wait until the next Lord's Day to eat again but on a regular basis to nourish your body physically. And in the same way, we ought to pursue the nourishment of our soul through the intake of God's word. Now in classroom terminology, we sort of dealt with the what and the why. Last week was sort of a theory Sunday. We ought to read the Bible on an ongoing basis, and we ought to read the Bible on an ongoing basis because it is God's Word, holy and inerrant, infallible, and inspired by God's Holy Spirit. It is good for you to read the Bible. It is profitable for correction and rebuke and instruction and teaching and training in righteousness in order that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's the what and the why. But there is a yet unanswered question, namely the how. I cannot tell you how often I hear from people who are desirous of reading the Bible who may have implemented some plan to read the Bible in the year ahead or a plan to read a portion of the Bible in the days ahead, and yet they are struggling in their comprehension of God's Word. I want to address in the time we have this morning the how. 
If reading the Bible is profitable for us, if this is something we ought to give ourselves to, how do we go about it? And so I hope to answer that question in the moments ahead. Our passage is, again, just two short verses from Psalm 119. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. By the way, Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, is a treatise on the goodness of God's Word and His grace toward us in affording us the privilege of peering in. Psalm 119.33, the Bible says, Teach me, Lord, the meaning of your statutes, and I will always keep them. Help me understand your instruction, and I will obey it and follow it with all my heart. May the Lord bless and honor the reading and the preaching of his holy word. You may be seated. I want to try to be this morning as practical as I can possibly be. In fact, I want to just start part one of the sermon by offering you some practical insights for the study of God's word. And the first practical move you might make in gaining greater access to the word of God is to find for yourself a translation of the Bible that is appropriate to your reading ability or level of comprehension. I preach from what is called in the shorthand the HCSB. I get questions about translation often. It's an acronym for the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It was actually sponsored by the Southern Baptist Convention about 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago now. And because of its sponsorship and its acronym, it was known in jest in the early days as the Hardcore Southern Baptist Bible. But I don't preach from this translation of the Bible because I'm a Hardcore Southern Baptist. I preach from the HCSB for a very specific reason. Because the HCSB, in my estimation, balances faithfulness to the Hebrew of the Old Testament, faithfulness to the Greek of the New Testament, and reader accessibility in a way that I think is unmatched. Here, here's what I mean by that. I think that in terms of technical precision, there are better translations of the Bible than the one that I preach from. In fact, if I'm in my personal study, I would rather use the English Standard Version, or ESV, or the New American Standard Bible, the NASB, than the Holman Christian Standard. Just because I think they're more technically precise than the Holman Christian Standard that I preach from. But the ESV and the NASB are both written at a 12th grade reading level. The Holman Christian Standard Bible that I preach from is written at an eighth grade level. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, there are no reading comprehension issues. What are you talking about? This is an outmoded concern. But if that is your thought, you are wrong. And so at a point in time in my ministry, when I was making a determination about which direction I would go with translation, my default position was to go ESV or NASB because I love those translations. But during that window of time, this was a very real ministry experience. I've been preaching from the New King James, growing in my understanding of the languages. I just got tired of having to constantly answer for translation issues, specifically in the Old Testament, in the New King James. So I made a conscious decision to make this shift. And I was bombarded in a brief window of time with people who expressed to me a desire to read and know God's Word better, but who really struggled with reading comprehension. 
So I try to take the best of both worlds, as precise technically as possible, while balanced together with an interest for reader accessibility, choosing the Holman Christian Standard. Now, there are more accessible translations than the HCSB, but they're not nearly as technically precise, and I try to refrain from recommending those translations. In any event, you need to have enough self-awareness about your personal abilities to choose for yourself a translation that makes the Bible accessible to you. I've tried to talk as much as I can in, in the broad way of Bible intake, more so than Bible reading. I, I know I'm not always successful at that, even in the last couple of weeks. But I, I just point that out to note for us that there are all over the world faithful brothers and sisters who cannot write their name, let alone read the Bible in the traditional sense, who would never think to pick up a copy of God's Word and read it, but are taking in the Word of God in different and creative ways. Often in oral societies where literacy levels are low, they're memorizing the Bible, which is an outstanding method for hiding His Word in our heart that we might not sin against Him. I have been pushing back, back against this trend in education for the last decade. Rote memorization is no longer fashionable in education. Kids don't memorize stuff, so they don't learn the ability or develop the capacity for good memorization. But the Bible is not intended to function as a Google search engine. Here I am at a crossroads in my life. Let me put in the data that describes my scenario. And let's let Google spit out what book, chapter, and verse I ought to read to provide instruction in this season. The Bible is intended, the Word of God is intended to be hidden away in our heart. It may not be that we have good rote memory of every verse of the Bible, but the principles of God's Word have been hidden in our heart in order that the Spirit of God in that moment at the crossroads might enlighten our mind and provide instruction and direction as to how we might move forward. Be creative. Utilize advances in technology in order to improve your accessibility to the Bible, your understanding of the Bible, your level of comprehending what the Bible actually says. God in heaven knows that technology has beset many Christians and proves to be a thorn in our side, but there are ways that we can benefit from the access to technology that we enjoy. Chances are you have a smart device in your pocket. And if you are a follower of Christ, there's a pretty good chance that on that smart device is a Bible app of some shape or form. Back a few years ago, I was preaching on men leading their families in devotional uh, family worship and the need for the reading of the Bible over their family as the spiritual leader of the home. A few weeks after that, a guy came to me and with this smiling face and, and, and joyous, expressive conversation, he was sharing with me all of his difficulties with reading comprehension. Pastor, I can barely read out loud. I'm embarrassed to read out loud, but he's, he's telling me all of this with gladness in his voice. I, I had no idea where this conversation was going. He said, I, I found this app and all I have to do is gather my family, put in the verse and push play. And it reads the passage out loud. This simple technology had provided him 
and all of his reluctance and, and insecurity with regards to reading, and even reading in front of his wife and his children, it had given him new access to be a spiritual leader in a way that had been awkward and clumsy for him up until that moment. There are apps, and there are sermons online, and there are YouTube videos, and various other technologies that you can use to enhance your access to the Bible that can open this ability. Even this morning in getting ready for church, I'm listening online to a sermon on the joy of world missions. Utilize those resources to grow in grace and to better understand God's Word. Those are all good, positive things. Podcasts and sermons and other audible Bible teaching materials. Here's here's another practical help. Determine for yourself an appropriate Bible reading plan so that there's consistency and personal accountability for the reading of the Bible. Now, I think it is a good thing that believers read the Bible through in a year. But but, but hear me, listen to me. There is no verse in the Bible that says, if you don't read the Bible through in a year, you are a second-class Christian. For some of you, it is not advisable for you to read the Bible through in a year. It won't mean much. You'll be doing little more than looking over words on a page with very little digestive consumption of the Word of God before you. For some of you, it'll be reading through the New Testament in a year. For others, and I commend this to new believers, maybe commit to reading the book of Genesis and the book of Matthew several times over in the next year. The reason it's important at some point to read through all of the Bible in a relatively short period of time is that it gives us a feel for the narrative arc, the story of salvation being told in the Bible. But you might be surprised the extent to which Genesis and Matthew are contributing to the development of that narrative arc, this story of redemption. Both of those are extremely accessible books that will give you a tremendous amount of insight as to what God's Word is really all about. And I think they're books that most are comfortable with beginning with. Don't just read them once, but read them many times over and master the story of what God is doing in both Genesis and in Matthew. But you're going to have to make a similar decision, a, a, a decision similar to the decision you'll make with regards to translation. What is suitable to my level of reading comprehension and spiritual maturity? Once you've made that determination, lock into it and hold yourself accountable to it. If you've been reading the Bible for any amount of time, in fact, if you've endeavored to have discipline in any area of your, of your life, You know how quickly the days can get away from you. You think to yourself, I've missed a day or two of reading the Bible. And then you look at your program and realize you've missed a month or two of reading your Bible program. Create some mechanism for personal accountability for the regular reading of God's Word. Here's here's another thing. Surround yourself with believers who compared to you are advanced in their understanding of the Bible and use their advancement, their maturity, their insight in order to improve your own. It's a good thing to sit with believers and to ask questions about the gospel, about the Bible, about concerns that you may have in your efforts to walk faithfully with Jesus. Make sure that those people are around you. 
I had a great pastor in my home church. John was gracious to allow me time with him to observe and walk with. And there was never a time when he said, wait, what we're going to do is from 12 to 1 on this day, we're going to sit down together and we're going to do a disciple-making program. There was never any of that conversation. It was, it was just conversation with him in very natural, organic ways that were often the product of the overflow of his own devotional life. His ability to weave into ordinary conversation the stories of the Bible that he was living with on a daily basis was just uncanny. And he would talk about them in such a way as to create interest on my part to go back and to investigate the word further, to find this principle, this application, this observation that he had made. Put the right kind of people around you that can be of encouragement to you. And for those of you who are fairly advanced in your understanding of the Bible, be intentional even about the casual conversation to make those kinds of deposits of the truth of God's word into conversation and ultimately into the hearts and lives of those around you. One last practical advice. Get yourself in a discipleship group where a group of people are practicing together the study of God's word and the application of those principles in their lives personally. We happen to have about 40 of those here at Longview Point, all of which would be glad to have you as a part of their discipleship group family. So make certain that you're connecting in that way. Here's, here's the deal. There are certain commands discovered in God's word that are individual in nature. In other words, they require something of you individually. But there are also commands in God's word that are practically impossible to honor in isolation from other followers of Jesus. Get yourself connected in a meaningful way into the fellowship of a discipleship group here, hopefully, at Longview Point. So that's part one of the sermon. Here's part two. I want to give you a, a clear and simple method for the study of the Bible that I think anyone at any level can make application of and grow the devotional quality of their Bible reading time. If you've been around for a while, you've heard at least some degree of conversation or at least the moniker sword method used within our congregation. I think when most people hear sword method, they think that's an acronym. It's actually not. It's really an illustration. There are cards that outline the sword method in any place in our building where you usually pick up stuff. If bulletins are there, there's a strong likelihood that there's a sword method card there. And there's the illustration. The sword is on the card. And then the four questions that follow from. It's a sword in the traditional sense with a blade pointing upward held in the hand of man with the crossbar that protects the hands. It's a traditional looking sword. The upward pointed blade is to remind us of question one in the sword method. And here it is. Question one. What does this passage teach about God? Whatever passage you read, the first question you might ask is, what does this text teach about God? The Bible is ultimately a book about God and his son, Jesus Christ. Most verses are making some contribution to our understanding of the goodness of God, the character of God, the attributes of God. Something is contributed about the nature of our God. That's question number one. 
The sword is held in the hand of man in our illustration, which is to prompt us to remember question number two in the sword method, which is what does this passage teach about man? Is there some observation made here about the character of man? The sinfulness of man, the inclinations of man. Is there something I can observe even about myself in this passage? The Bible helps us to be self-reflective. Is there a way this verse is contributing to my understanding of myself or to mankind more generally? That's question two. And then the crossbar in the sword illustration points to the two remaining questions. Question number three being, is there a sin to confess or a command to obey identified in this passage? Is there some straightforward direct command in the passage? Or is there a sin condemned that I ought to confess before God as a result of my devotional reading? Question number four is similar. Is there a promise in this verse to claim or an example to follow after in this passage? Now, those are four very basic questions that you can ask of any passage and enhance the devotional quality of your reading. Now, listen, I am not suggesting to you that this is a comprehensive guide to the interpretation of the Bible. I am the Bible interpretation guide. I like to poke holes in interpretive methodology. I like to investigate various interpretive methods for the study of the Bible. My degree, my dissertation is an interpretive method in the study of the Bible. There are dozens and dozens. There is source and form and historical and grammatical and theological and anthropological. There are social science methods to the study of the Bible. There are dozens of methodologies for the study of the Bible, many of which you're using intuitively when you come to the text of the Bible. This is not a comprehensive method. But you can take these four questions, regardless of your level of spiritual maturity or advancement, Apply them to the passage that you're reading and improve the devotional quality of your Bible reading life. Now, let's practice this a little bit, right? I've got two passages for you that I want us to walk through. And I want you to see the way that even passages that we're incredibly familiar with, our understanding can be enhanced, deepened by the application of this method. The first verse I want us to look at is John 3.16. You can turn there in your Bible if you like. Maybe you know it so well, it's unnecessary to do so. But I want you to follow through this process with me. This is the Bible on our lap portion of the sermon, making application of what we've observed. In John 3.16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Question number one asks, what does this passage teach about God? In this case, the answers are explicit, right? This passage teaches us that God loves the world. And secondly, the passage teaches us that God has given the world his son as an expression of this love. God loves the world and God gave his son. Question number two asks, what does this verse teach about man? Well, most notably, it teaches that any man who believes in God will inherit eternal life. Implicitly, 
We might say, the verse teaches, that any man who does not believe in Jesus will perish in damnation. In fact, verse 17, if you're reading along, affirms just that. Question number three asks, if there's a sin to confess or a command to obey identified in this verse, we might say that we should confess the sin of unbelief on the basis of John 3.16. And question four asks, if there's a promise to claim or an example to follow in this verse, there's not so much an example to follow, that's not the force of the verse, but there is assuredly a promise that we might claim, namely that God promises eternal life to those who believe in Jesus. Now, when we began that little exercise, you knew John 3.16 by rote memory. In, in all likelihood, you did. Even people who are far from God know John 3.16, at least have some vague familiarity with the verse. But don't you find that the process that those four questions allow us deepens and enlivens our, our understanding of the verse itself. Aren't you helped by that? Now let's look at one more verse. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 8. This is sort of the Protestant preamble, right? And I want you to turn to this verse so that we're able to process this verse and the four questions uh, associated with the sword method in a careful way. There are few sounds in the world that are more delightful to a preacher's heart than the sound of Bible pages turning. Ephesians 2.8 says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. So I'm going to try to slow the pace a little bit and, and hopefully afford for you some margin to answer the questions in your own hearts and minds before I tell you what I think they are. Ask of Ephesians 2.8, what does this verse teach about God? What is the passage teaching us about the character of God, his goodness? Is there any insight to be gained about the nature of our God on the basis of this verse? Well, we might say that Ephesians 2.8 teaches us that God gives the gift of faith. That's apparent in the verse. Question two, what does this verse teach us about man? Is there anything we can observe here about the character and the nature of man, of ourselves, or of mankind in general? The answer here is, is fairly apparent, although the context of the verse helps. Man cannot save himself. In fact, if you're familiar with Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the whole purpose of the section is to say, man cannot save himself. We were dead in sins and trespasses, but have by the gift of faith been made alive in Christ Jesus. If nothing is clear in Ephesians 2 and 1 through 10, it is that we cannot save ourselves. And the strong implication of verse 8 is the same. What we might observe of the character and nature of man is that we are helpless in and of ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. Question number three asks, is there any sin to confess or command to obey identified in this verse? What are your thoughts with regards to Ephesians 2.8? This one is not as apparent, but if you'll ponder long enough, you'll come to some type of response like confessing pride that leads to the belief that we are deserving of God's goodness. 
I don't think any believer ever comes to faith in Jesus with a full appreciation for the extent to which our salvation is the gift of God's grace. We know it in the beginning. This is often among the first verses we learn. But there are these light bulb moments along the way where it comes home, it lands on our heart with great weight. That God has not saved us because of something we did or we will do or who we are or who our parents were or where we grew up or some contribution the culture made or our environment made or because we were wiser or smarter, more winsome or mature than someone else. It is an act of grace and of grace alone that God has saved us. So we confess the prideful belief that we've in any way contributed to this work of salvation God has graciously given. How about the last question? Is there a promise to claim or an example to follow in this passage? Well, again, the example is not really the priority of the passage. This is a teaching passage. Usually narrative passages will be the passages that provide an example. But there is a promise here, namely that God gives grace to his people. Now, originally, what I had thought to do was to give you a really easy verse like John 3.16 and then a really hard verse. In fact, what I had in mind was what I think is the most obscure verse in all of the Bible from the book of Deuteronomy where the Bible says, don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. And then just sort of process that through the grid of, yeah, that's as obscure as it gets, right? What does that passage teach us about God? Well, boiling baby goats and mother's milk was pagan practice, so it tells us that God has a keen interest in his people living their lives separate and distinct from the pagan culture around them. And it reminds, them, reminds us, rather, of our propensity to conform our lives according to what is socially acceptable among the pagans and not the holy standard of God's word. Is there a sin to confess? That might be the only verse in the Bible that does not compel me to make confession of sin. I have done some dreadful things, but I have never yet boiled a baby goat in its mother's milk, I am happy to say. But it does lead me to the confession of my propensity toward that which is dishonoring of God. Is there a promise to claim or an example to follow? For the life of me, if there is, I don't know what it is. And I wanted to go to a difficult verse like that, an obscure verse like that, to say to you, every verse, every passage is not going to answer every question. Don't overcomplicate it. The method, the questions are to be an aid to you, not a saddle on your back burdening down in, the, in a cumbersome way your reading and study of the Bible. Now, those four questions are available to you in the app. Everywhere that we publish sermon notes contains those four questions, and we have materials available to you in very easy-to-handle, index card-sized explanation of the sword method. Make sure that you get one of those. Tuck it away in your Bible. Keep the card handy until those four questions become intuitively a part of your devotional reading Life. It's a very simple, straightforward method that can enhance your understanding regardless of level of advancement or maturity. You can benefit from the practice and application of that sword methodology. So we talked about practical helps, apps and translations and things of the like. And then we talked about a method for the reading of the Bible. But I want to talk about an essential element of Bible reading. By, by the way, you can intake the Bible without apps, 
without translations. You, in fact, you could, you could not have access to any of the things we described in the first part of our message. You can intake the Bible without the sword method. But this third aspect of Bible intake is essential. You cannot read and understand the Word of God apart from the work of God's Holy Spirit. Note here, go back to Psalm 119, 33 and 34, that the psalmist is praying. He is making his petition. Teach me, Lord, the meaning of your statutes, and I will always keep them. Help me understand your instruction, and I will obey it and follow it with all my heart. It is a wise thing that you would begin your devotional reading of the Bible with the brief prayer, God, open the eyes of understanding that I may know you and understand your word, and I will keep its commandments. It is a decidedly spiritual thing when you and I understand the truths of the gospel found in the word of our God. If there is anything clear about the ministry of the Holy Spirit as Jesus explains it, it is that the counselor, the Holy Spirit, sent by the Father in Jesus' name, will teach us all things and remind us of the things God has told us. The Spirit's work is to open our eyes and enliven our hearts that we might discern the things of the Spirit. And at that crossroads moment, In in the heat of battle, to bring to our mind, to embolden and enliven in us a capacity for obedience to the very principle that has been hidden away in our heart to guard and protect us from sin. This is the work of God's Holy Spirit. I have interacted with, in academia, scholars who have given themselves to the study of the Bible. 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 and in a couple of cases 50 years who are no closer to an understanding of the God of the Bible than they were in the beginning because the study of the Bible is not an exclusively academic effort scholarly rigor cannot scratch the depths of the spiritual insight afforded us through the teaching of the Bible. This is a Holy Spirit work. The only thing you have to have, you essentially, you necessarily, you must have in order to gain any access whatsoever to the Word of God is the abiding presence and the work of God's Holy Spirit in you. You must have the Spirit. And there are certain instances where those who find themselves kicking against the goads of their own lack of understanding are wrestling against this very principle. The natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit. The factor that's missing, the formula of understanding in your personal life, Maybe the work of God's Holy Spirit opening the eyes and enlivening the heart. There's a second element to this spiritual dimension of reading the Bible. Often when we think about mining the depths of the Scripture, advancing in maturity and growing in grace, we think about the investigation of what we regard to be the deep doctrines and truths of the Bible. 
15 years ago, I was a much younger pastor and a part of a wave of new young pastors across the state of Mississippi. We had it all figured out. We had a lot more zeal than we had wisdom. Most of us got fired before we ever had the opportunity to demonstrate our great insight and ability. But God was gracious and that that was not the case for me. And he taught me quickly the air of my misdirection. I watched as my friends sought to resolve what they regarded to be immaturity in their congregations by force-feeding what they believed to be doctrinaire sermons to a people who were almost altogether disinterested in their seminary-like lectures on Sunday morning. They thought they could fix the problem of cultural Christianity with a doctrinaire fire-hose approach. And so they charged into their churches to correct what they believed to be centuries of misunderstanding and to straighten out the masses. What I began to observe early on was that the approach taken to address immaturity was actually in direct opposition to what we ought to have been doing. I think specifically about a passage from Hebrews 5 that usually comes up when talking about the problem of immaturity. Don't turn there, just listen carefully to what the Bible says. The author of Hebrews says, although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Here's what I want you to see. When the author of Hebrews addresses the problem of immaturity in the church, some of you are on milk, but you ought to be on meat by now. What he doesn't say to them is, your problem is you don't have a solid eschatology. He doesn't say to them, you've never read Grudem Systematic. He doesn't say to them, you don't understand Greek participles. He doesn't say to them, you've not yet meted out this balance between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. He says, the problem with you is that you're not practicing the basic principles of God's word. You want to understand enigmatic, mysterious passages in the Bible. You want to master revelation. Let me tell you what you ought to do. Before you read Beale's commentary. Love God with all of your heart and soul and strength and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. When you come across very basic foundational principles in the Bible, labor and struggle and strive to do them. How about this example? In Philippians chapter 2, the Bible says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. I got to tell you, I don't have any struggle whatsoever understanding that verse. I have all the trouble in the world with doing what it requires me to do. And here's what I began to discover in my early journeys with Jesus. As I was laboring and struggling and striving to do what God had so clearly instructed me to do, God was quite often pleased to meet me in my struggle toward obedience, fill and empower by the presence of His Holy Spirit in ways that not only enhanced my capacity for obedience, 
It improved the degree to which I was able to understand and discern the principles of his word. The answer to understanding the deep truths of the Bible is not a commentary series. It is the abiding presence of God's Holy Spirit enabling and empowering the believer who is laboring to walk worthy of the calling with which they are called. Y'all tracking with me this morning? I think that for most believers, there's this perception, and it could not be further from the truth. It's, it's the idea that in the beginning, what, what we've got to do is understand the gospel. But in, other to, in, 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 in order to get to maturity, we've got to move on to these other issues. And we've got them itemized. Like we know what they are in our mind. They're like these issues that represent major, big, mature issues. And if a person is sorted through those issues, in our mind, that's reflective of maturity. But I, I just got to tell you, that is the most wrong-headed approach to our study of the Bible possible. We never advance beyond the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are advancing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in so much as your motive in the reading of God's word is to further immerse yourself in the message of God's grace toward us, what he has done for us and his son Jesus, if that is your MO in coming to the Bible, you will never step away from the fountain of the water of life with parched lips. God is pleased to grant understanding when we come to his word with a pure heart, with the kind of intent expressed in the very passage we began with. Listen again. Teach me, Lord, the meaning of your statutes, and I will always keep them. Help me understand your instruction, and I will obey it and follow it with all my heart. Notice that the psalmist does not say, teach me your statutes and I will answer all of the questions in the back of my weekly quarterly. Teach me your statutes and I will wow my discipleship group with all of the correct answers. Teach me your statutes and I will win arguments on social media. Teach me your statutes and I will tell all these sinners what the problem is with them. No, the psalmist says, Lord, Teach me your statutes, and I will labor, and I will struggle, and I will strive to obey them with all of my heart and soul and strength and mind. This is the way we are to come to the Word of God. You will find that as you labor to keep the commands of the Scripture and to honor the Word, you do understand that God is pleased to open the eyes of understanding to even further what we might otherwise call the deeper truths of the Bible. I mentioned a moment ago that we don't advance beyond the gospel. We advance in the gospel. I really believe that with all of my heart. There was a time several years ago, I've, I've confessed that I have this fixation on resolutions and disciplines and checking boxes. My, my preaching resolution that year was that every, every sermon I would bring to an end and I would begin the invitation with a little different wrinkle of the gospel, like from a little different perspective. What, what I was really trying to do secondarily was, was to enhance our understanding and appreciation for the message of the gospel within the body. Smooth transition to a time of invitation, which is always a good thing, right? You want to be clear. 
communicate clearly in the sermon. Want to do all of the things that you can to not create obstacles to your people in responding to the word of God. But, but secondarily, and, and, and really an important part, was to reinforce our appreciation for the message of the gospel. So on Sunday one, it'd be something like this. Like I'll talk about atonement, how the blood of Jesus washes all our sin away. Maybe on Sunday two, propitiation, how the wrath of God against us is satisfied by the death and suffering of Jesus on the cross. Maybe on Sunday three, justification, how judicially, how legally we are found in the courtroom of heaven to be holy and blameless and righteous by faith in Jesus. Maybe the doctrine of imputed righteousness on a Sunday, how the goodness of God, how the perfect righteousness of Jesus is accredited to our account. We get his goodness by virtue of the gospel. Maybe the mercy of God, how he's tender towards sinners. Or maybe something like resurrection, how we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but have now been made alive, and the spiritual enlivening serves as a deposit, the guarantee, the down payment on our physical resurrection at the second coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I really thought, foolishly, I'm almost embarrassed to admit, I really thought by July or August, I will have exhausted these varying perspectives on the gospel, these wrinkles of discussion in the story of what God has done for us. And here I am, some years later, having yet to exhaust the depths of the riches of God's grace toward us through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A message that speaks of God's great love for the world, proven in the sending forth of his only son, Jesus, who would live without sin in perfect righteousness, who would die for my sin and for yours on the cross. He who knew no sin would become sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. The just one given over for the unjust in order that the wrath of God against our sin might be satisfied eternally. Buried in a borrowed grave, raised again on the third day, joined to that resurrection life by faith, assured that one day at the coming of our Savior, any pleasure, any second of this life we have chosen to forego in the here and now for the glory of our God might be restored and all the more in the physical resurrection of our bodies. That is the message of the gospel. And it's a message we're invited to partake of this morning. Receive the gift of faith by grace. May our eyes be opened and may our hearts be enlivened to the truths of the gospel and the message of his word. May our prayer together be even as the psalmist, Lord, Teach us to understand your statutes, and I will labor and struggle and strive to honor you with all my life. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, the tremendous privilege that is ours in having the access that we have, access that is far too often taken for granted, presumed upon, and neglected. God, I pray with the psalmist this morning that you'd give us eyes to see and hearts to discern the truth of your word. God, help us to hide it away in our heart that we might not 
sin against you. May it be a light unto our path, lamp unto our way. Remind us of the imperishable nature of your word, that the grass withers and its flower fades away, but the word of our God abides forever. Help us, Lord, to bear in mind day by day in our devotional reading that the reading of your word is about the nourishment of our soul. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Create in us, Lord, a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Satisfy this hunger. Satisfy this thirst through the empowering work of your Holy Spirit. God, we ask these things, this prayer, we make this petition in the strong name of your son, Jesus. Amen.